0: I want to say a special thanks to Tyler and Madison, uh, who joined us today. Tyler's the really good-looking, bearded guy, and then uh, Madison is his wife here. Madison, just so you know, whenever you come up and get lost, your music sheets are right there for later. Um, my name is Buddy Lyles. It's my privilege to serve as lead pastor. I just want to extend my greeting to you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm glad you're here to worship with us on the Sunday uh, after Easter. and. Um, man, the Lord knows. Um, he knows how to fit together a day. Um, originally, the passage we were going to go through today was going to be pre-Easter, and then through some various things, he led us to change it to today. And I hope that you see the fittingness of it by not only what we've sung, uh, what Ashton shared, uh, and then what will be in the passage today. It's Again, it's one of those things that might hit my heart with more joy than yours because you're not in the grind that I was in all week uh, trying to wrestle with this passage. And yet, uh, I pray that the Lord would would do something uh, in stirring each of us what we've just sung of and declared in song, declared in testimony, and as Peter will um, give it to us straight and then not so straight in First Peter 3. Let me pray again and we'll dive in. Father, I do thank you for your grace. Um, we're not here to praise young life, but we are here to say how much we appreciate it. Uh, I can I have my own personal experience, Lord um, being a volunteer and being a unpaid staff um, and just getting on high school campuses with with kids uh, who seem very, very far and very, very unreachable, and yet, Lord, what a god you are to provide the privilege of getting with them on their turf. Thank you, um, Lord, for being able to be up close and personal myself to see that, to see hearts changed, lives changed, trajectories changed. Lord, thank you that you've done that with each of us here who have trusted Jesus Christ. You use a somebody. It may not have been a young life leader. It may have been a parent. It may have been a grandparent, it may have been a coworker, somebody on our college campus, Lord. We thank you for those who took The risk, who stuck their necks out, who were willing to engage us on our turf, maybe as we were resistant, maybe as we were even oppositional. Thank you, Lord, that you were the great melter of hearts, the great lifter of heads that seem unliftable. And pray, Father, that you might be glorified in our attention to your word and in our desire by your Spirit's power to obey it and live it out as we leave, so that you'd be represented as the God of grace and mercy and love that you are. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we pick up, uh, back up in our series through First Peter, which we're calling Surprising, Not Surprised. Uh, the subtitle is Living Hope in a Hostile and Hurting World. And we've said we absolutely live in a hostile, uh, growingly hostile uh, and hurting world. Uh, last Sunday, we celebrated Easter, um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But Easter's not just a nice story to dust off once a year and, you know, call it a, call it a year and, and, and we'll revisit it again. Jesus rising bodily from the grave gives us a living hope and it's a hope that we live by each day. And so we celebrated it last Sunday but make no mistake, it is not just a living hope we have, but it's a hope that God designed us to live by, to be sustained by, and to motivate us. He calls you and me, as we talk about as a church often, to live as ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is in a place that is not their home, and First Peter is all about being a manual for what he calls resident aliens. Some of you say elect exiles, It means we are weird and foreign and distinct and people are like, what? And that's part of God's design. He calls us to embody, as Ashton shared that word, to embody and extend the same living hope to others. And so in our, I mean, completely unraveling at times, disheartening and troubling times, how can you and I, how can our living hope, be the hope that we also daily live by, especially when we suffer, and especially if that suffering is unmerited, undeserved, unfair, or unjust. And how can we navigate day-to-day life and seasons of life and suffering? How can we navigate our suffering so distinctively that it surprises that it actually draws out the curiosity of coworkers, neighbors, family members. Well, what are they curious about? Literally, in the passage we're going to be in today, literally, what your neighbor or coworker is curious about in your life and mine is the within you hope. The within you hope. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and his word, turn to first Peter. If you're not already there, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're actually just going to read the first part of our section. Uh, The entirety will be 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 22. We'll just read verses 13 through 17 uh, at this point. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. "'Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good?' But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better... If God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This is God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. As I said, how are we to navigate life and especially suffering so distinctively that it surprises, it draws out people's curiosity as to what is that within you hope that you have? They don't have that specific wording in their mind. But they're like, there's something in you that I want to know what it is. There's something in the way that you handle suffering. There's something in the way that your perspective, that you're not completely capsized. Yeah, it's choppy and you're bouncing, but you have at least a buoyancy not to drown in your suffering. What is it? What is that within you? Hope. And Peter from this verse 13 through the rest of 1 Peter, the thread and the theme that runs through it is suffering, particularly unjust suffering. And specifically in this passage, unjust suffering. Suffering that we would say, that's not fair. You didn't deserve it. You did nothing wrong, and yet you are suffering unjustly for it. And he says that you're blessed. He says, it is better. Words like that is not how we feel when we're suffering. When we have uh, the pain of uh, a spouse that is saying things about us that are not true, that it may, perhaps they're unfaithful to us, or perhaps a coworker is slandering us to uh, fellow employees or to the boss, so we, the ceiling is on us, we're not gonna get, and yet we handle it in a certain way. He's saying things like, You won't always suffer, but even if you do suffer for doing what is good, you are blessed. And it's better, if God wills it so, that you suffer for doing good rather than doing wrong. In other words, if you're suffering because you're an idiot, or you're a jerk, or you're out of bounds, then the suffering fits. But he's saying in that case where you're particularly suffering because you align with Jesus, or at least your values do, and they mess up this world's desire for what they, how they want to define life and boundaries. He says now you've got the threats coming your way and the suffering. You're blessed, and it is better that kind of suffering. So suffering for what is good, verse 17, really is the theme through these verses and the weird verses after it that we're going to read in a minute, okay? Some of you probably want to look down and see what the weird verses are. But suffering for what is good. You're blessed and it's better, and the only way we can suffer for what is good is in this first couple verses, 13 and 14, and then skip 15 and 16 and 17. We can suffer in a way that piques curiosity In a way that there is that blessedness that we are navigating our suffering because we have a living hope that sustains us. We can suffer for what is good because of a living hope that's been given us and that living hope sustains us in the midst of suffering. Why? Well, because he tells us really suffering is par for the course. Now he says, who can harm you If you're zealous for what is good, and the word zealous is like, you've got an eager oomph to do what is good, to do what is morally right, to do what is noble. All those things in Philippians 4, he says, let your mind be set on these kinds of trustworthy, noteworthy, noble things. Lives that are distinctively exhibiting and expressing the kingdom of God. If you have that kind of eager oomph to live in such a way, generally, even the non-believing world is like, well, I mean, I don't know why you treat me so well, but I kind of want to be kind to you. Now, there's still going to be jerks but you think uh, out there, but you think about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, for the most part, wanted to do right by Daniel, even when there was a scheme against him. Why? Because Daniel lived nobly, respectfully. That's what all we saw in First Peter 2. How can we be the best citizen we can be? How how can we be the best uh, slave or servant or employee under a boss that may be unjust? How can we be, in, in the beginning of 1 Peter 3, how can we be the kind of spouse that lives and does well by their spouse? He says, when you do that, generally it works out well. It's proverbial, it's not a promise, it's not a guarantee but you, you keep your nose clean and you be about others and people will respect that generally. But he says, but you can also know that it's par for the course that suffering will come. Paul says it this way, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the word persecuted often in the New Testament is that same word for being zealous for good. It's that zealous. There, there's a drivenness to get at you. And he says, know that that's par for the course. If you name the name of Christ, not everybody's going to be a fan, and some will be opponents, and some will be hostile. He says, but we have a living hope that sustains us, and we can know. He says, uh, verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. This um, harkens back to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Peter would have been there, would have heard it. He probably would have heard it on other occasions. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 10 through 12? He says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So they possess something of eternal value and significance. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, not only are you blessed, Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, suffering is par for the course. Expect suffering. It won't always come, but if it does, and you're you're getting suffering because you are aligned with me and pursuing righteousness, pursuing living uh, in ways that are good and kingdom, you know, minded. He says, you're blessed and you're in good company. He said, that's the way they treated the prophets of old. That's the way they treated Jeremiah when they just threw him in the pit. That's the way they treated Daniel when they schemed against him. You are in good company. So the next time you're at work and there are coworkers who, they've kind of been trying to chip away and mock a little bit here or there, but now they've got a scheme against you. Here in your mind, the spirit of God saying, you are blessed. Now, he doesn't mean hunky-dory, everything's going to work out for you. But he does mean what I would describe as a kingdom joyancy. So not just buoyancy, or I just, you know, I'm just not going to drown. It's like, I'm not only not going to drown, God's giving me a joy because I know someday my reward will be great. He is giving us a living hope that can sustain us, give us that joyancy. And he says, it's par for the course, but you are blessed. You're in good company. He says, in fact, don't fear their intimidation. Don't fear their threats. He's actually alluding to Isaiah 8, where the people of God were being threatened, and they were tempted to say, you know what? I think I might try to work some schemes here and get some alignment with some others to protect us. And literally, Isaiah says, don't fear their fears. The things that the surrounding pagan culture are after, and they're always scheming about, and they're always afraid of about. He says, don't go their way. Let your fear not be in in man. Let your fear be in God. Fear me, trust me, and watch how I deliver those who are mine. He says, so don't fear. Don't have a misplaced fear or a misplaced hope of deliverance. If you're suffering, you're blessed. And verse 17, drop down there. And it is better if God should will that you suffer for doing good rather than for suffering because you're the one who deserves it. How can that be? How can it be better? How can painful, sometimes torturous, often threatening, how can suffering, because I name the name of Christ or I'm seeking to live well, to be that kind of good citizen, good spouse, good worker. How is it better to suffer for doing good? Well, two words, and then we're going to drop down to the weird passage. Two words is, yes, you're suffering now, but the two words are ultimate vindication. Ultimate vindication. Look down at verse 18. If you're like, wait, buddy, you skipped some of the passage. I'm coming back to it. I'm going through the weird stuff so we can get back to the propelling stuff, all right? Verse 18, how can we know that we're blessed? How can we live understanding that blessedness and leaning into that God says it's better, so I'm gonna trust him in that? Verse 18, four, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, why? So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, here we go. Hold on, stay awake. He was made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Hold on if that freaks you out, because he explains it the next line. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now he's getting back to his main point. Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. All right, everybody take a deep breath. (sighs) Okay, so suffering is normal, expected. It's par for the course, but it's blessed. And it's better. Why? Because it's a living hope that he says in chapter 1, it's reserved for you in heaven. It, it can't be taken away. It can't be defiled. And he secured that living hope, verse 18, because Jesus died. Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also died for sins once for all. When he says four, he's saying, I'm explaining what I've been talking about. What has he been talking about? How in the world we can navigate unjust suffering and why it's better to stick with God even when it hurts. He says, I'm gonna give you the model. I'm gonna give you the example. He actually gives us two examples. Now, Jesus isn't only an example. We'll talk about that in just a second. But I do want you to see that little word for. He's not done talking about what he's talking about. For, you want the ultimate example of unjust suffering? It's Jesus. And because Jesus willingly, and not just willingly, but for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, he endured the cross because of that. And him being just or righteous, dying for, you can fill in the blank, buddy, the unjust, or put in your name, the unrighteous, because he was willing to do that. And for the joy set before him, he died for sins once for all. All the sacrifices that led up to that were never sufficient. They could never fully satisfy God's wrath. But Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. We're going to finish with that thought, but I want you to know he's saying not only is Jesus your example, but he actually has secured that hope that sustains you in the hard times. He secured it on the cross. He's the ultimate example, but he's the ultimate securer of your destiny, of the hope that is in you, or Christ in you, the hope of glory, that hope of one day all things will be made right, that God will show up and take care of this mess. Jesus secured you and me. If we have come to faith in him, he secured us to be part of his victory that he won on the cross. So he gives us that living hope. It is secured, but it's also the hope that assures us when life unravels, when we are being attacked, when we are being mocked or ridiculed. Okay, so... Because of Jesus' suffering, his place taking death, we have a living hope that is secured and it assures us, though we may face unjust mistreatment, we can know that we will, just like Jesus is vindicated, and that's what we're going to see in the passage, we will also be ultimately vindicated as we share in his victory over sin and death. Now, very quickly, we're going to look at verses 19 um, to 20. 19 to 20, what in the world are we talking about here? I want to tell you this, um, two things I want you to hear. Peter does something they taught us uh, in preaching classes. You don't ever do this. You don't ever thought an illustration that you have to spend more time trying to explain the illustration so people aren't confused or derailed or fall asleep because then you lose the main thing, okay? Now, I want to say that semi-jokingly and semi-agonizingly. Um, Because it's only semi because God intended for it to be this way. That's the other thing I want to tell you. We're not going to come away going, man, we buttoned that thing up. We're not doing that today. We're going to to give some explanation, all right? But what I do want you to see is, for one, we're not chicken to go through hard passages. If you're newer with us, we are Allen Bible Church. We're going to teach the Bible. And sometimes you're going to have me, which I'm just going to tell you, there are lots of uh, commentators and experts who are on, like, three main camps of what in the world this could be, and you would respect people in each one. So hear that. So we should have a humility. We should definitely consult people. Um, have others thought about it? But what I want you to hear especially is how do you navigate any passage that's hard? Context, context, context. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing is, you always let Scripture interpret Scripture. So, like I said on the baptism thing, If we know that baptism doesn't save us elsewhere from other scriptures, let's make sure that comes into play, okay, because that's not what he's talking about. All right, so thank you, Peter, for this. Let's talk about, just a minute, verses 19 to 20. What in the world? He says, um, "...in which also Jesus, made alive in the Spirit, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God... Kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Okay, there are three main schools of thought. I'm going to give them really quick, tell you the one I lean toward, and then we're going to go, oh yeah, let's remember the forest instead of the trees. We good? We still good? All right. So, some believe, one school of thought is they believe that this speaks of Jesus uh, just simply preaching through Noah, the pre incarnate Christ, that in the days of Noah, um, Jesus was right there with him preaching through Noah a preacher of righteousness in a very wicked day. So some think that's simply what it is. Um, some believe that uh, Jesus went and preached uh, to people who didn't believe in Noah's day. Um, in other words, this, here's the message of salvation. You guys refused. But I definitely would say if that's it, he's not going, hey, you missed it, so here's an offer of salvation. Because we know that when death hits, we have had our opportunity. So if, even if it is that, it would not be, hey, here's a chance. Do you want to repent now? Do you want to believe now? That would not be the case. The third line in which I would lean toward and, and several that you would respect would lean toward, like who in the world are these spirits? When did Jesus go do this and all that, okay? Um, the third line of thought that I'd lean toward is, um, because of the context, because of other references in Second Peter and Jude, um, they mention angels who left their proper domain um, there in, in a passage about uh, immorality and wickedness. Second Peter, as well as uh, Jude, I think it's verses 6 and 7, that really um, makes a lot of sense to believe that this is Jesus going to make a victory announcement to fallen angels of that time period uh, during Noah's day that Jesus actually, between his death, he died on the cross. Uh, his body is dead. He's made it alive in the spirit and in the spirit. He goes to a specific place, a holding tank. It's called here prison. Uh, it's, it's called um, in Second Peter and Jude, um, pits of darkness or Tartarus. It's this holding tank for these really awful demonic being there and demons are angels who are fallen so he goes not to offer them a chance not to offer others who rejected Noah's message of salvation at that time to miss God's judgment to be saved from God's judgment over sin but to go and if you will flex that Jesus goes to flex and says you kept trying you tried it in that day so God um, uh, took care of that with the flood and then he kept his movement going, promises to Abraham. You kept trying to mess it up, but Messiah came. I'm Messiah. You, um, you thought, well, through these religious leaders, uh, through the Romans, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, take care of him once for all. And you actually were right in line with God saying, there has to be a death. I have to have a sacrifice that's sufficient, that satisfies my wrath. And so on the cross, Jesus did that. Now, Who are these? Uh, Very likely, it goes back to Genesis 6, right before the the flood. In those days, it says that the sons of God, and that's probably referring to uh, angels um, and fallen angels, says that they looked on the daughters of men, found them attractive. They cohabited with them. Now I'm starting to lose some of you, right? Okay. Uh, And there was a race that came from them. Of which you see in the next couple of verses, God says, I'm so sick and sorry that I made humanity, I'm going to wipe them out. But Noah and his family, in fact, were the only, only eight who believed God. And Noah did some ridiculous stuff and received ridicule and unjust suffering and never saw vindication in his time until a reign that he'd never conceived came, flooded the earth, and God wiped out that generation. But he preserved Noah and his family, who then through them, you have the lines that go forward. And so um, that's what I would say that this is. And then he says, cause corresponding to that, that water judgment that God wiped out the earth with, corresponding to that, he's still thinking of these flood waters. baptism, our baptism, symbolizes us dying with Christ and being raised to walk in newness of life, that, that judgment that should have been ours, that death that he died should have been mine for my sins, that Jesus' death for me and for you is just like that ark, salvation for Noah and his family. That is the ark for us. That apart from putting our faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, we will be wiped out and without hope. But if we have placed our faith in him, we know that we are saved. And he goes to announce that victory. You can see this in Colossians 2, that he disarmed the authorities and the powers. He basically took names. He basically could say, it is finished. And God says, yes, in verse 22, what does he say? Come back to the the main point. Jesus, uh, sorry, um, through the end of verse 21 We're saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ after he died once for all and he's raised and Jesus is at the right hand of God. That is a place um, of prominence, of honor, of reward. Because he fulfilled everything, God could be just by punishing sin and justifier of the unjust like me and you. He could be the justifier of us if we have faith in Jesus. And he says, Jesus has now been vindicated. So you can suffer for what is good, being sustained by the truth that ultimately, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in this lifetime, even hints of it, but ultimately there will be no ultimate harm that can be done to you and me. That we are his, there is nothing that can snatch us out of his hand and we will be ultimately vindicated and share in his victory of which he flexed on those demons and said, the victory has been won. You are defeated. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. So that's that. Noah is an example for us of trusting God during ridicule, going through that unjust suffering and rejection, and yet God vindicating him, saving him. We too can trust him. Now, what in the world does that living hope that he secured and assures us of, what does it look like to be the hope that we live by day by day so that it causes others to go, what is it about you? What is this within you hope? Verse 15, end verse 14, don't be troubled. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Let's be the not troubled but, verse 15, "But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, I'll told you literally, for the within you hope. How do we do it? Yet with gentleness and reverence. and keep a good conscience. That's have integrity about you, an inner life getting expressed in a matching outer life. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So we're to live as a surprise. How? By sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. That means to set apart. Some of you say um, make him holy or reverence him as holy. Sanctify means to set apart for a specific use or a specific um, lifting up for uh, value and worship and honor. Here's what I want you to hear from this, because we don't have much time you realize that your hope is showing. My hope is showing. And especially when we go through suffering, especially when we go through a downturn, when we're being sideswiped by this circumstance in life, when um, we're now facing being ostracized and sidelined because we name the name of Christ, my hope and your hope is showing. So not only uh, is do we have ultimate vindication because Jesus went through suffering that led to that, not only is suffering par for the course, but our suffering, God has set it up that our suffering in a special way is a platform through which we can declare, or first we can display, and we can declare that our hope is is ultimately in Jesus. It says, sanctify him as Lord in your hearts. And he says, be ready to give an account. We're to be ready. We're to be ready. But we've got to sanctify him as Lord in our hearts, even in the season, especially in the season when it's awful. And then we need to be ready because God will provide the opportunities. God will provide, as Ashton shared, the teenager who says, I kind of been snubbing you for like three years, but I just have one question because actually they're going through a hard time. And they don't see perfection in you, they just see consistency. They see availability. And they see that strange, if it's not joyancy, it's at least buoyancy. He says, Be ready because I'm going to give you platforms not to talk about yourself, not to show all your methods, your TED Talk way of doing life, but to talk about the within you hope. He says, be ready for it. And he's going to tell us how to give that account. Uh, My first summer moving here from Memphis, uh, I worked at Willamette Paper Company. I worked the graveyard shift from 11 a.m. to 7 a.m. And because I was the lowest guy on the totem pole, that usually meant somebody called in and I had to work till 11 a.m., don't worry, they paid me well. Um, but there were some interesting characters on the night shift. And one of them was Wes. He was a Marine, uh, a lot of hard and fast living, and he had actually done hard time. He'd been in prison more than once. And Wes and I had built a 3 a.m. lunch break friendship. Uh, to most of them, they mocked me. Uh, they called me college boy. And most of them, and Wes would join in that sometimes at first. Uh, and some some of them, when they figured out I was a believer, would mock me for that as well. But um, we developed that 3 a.m. lunch break friendship through the summer. A few days before my summer job was ending, I invited Wes to hang out where I lived, which was actually in a barn uh, in Grapevine. It had horses, and he was intrigued. And so we left our seven at 7 a.m. We clocked out. We got to the barn. I introduced him to the horses. We ate some breakfast. And then Wes just casually, he said, hey, buddy, I, I've, I've watched you all summer. There's, there's something going on. Now, this guy didn't have a lot of filter, so he just kind of got right to it. And he said, I've watched you all summer. There's something going on inside of you that I don't have. I simply asked him, well, what's, what's stirring around in you? And that hardened ex-Marine, he opened up about things that haunt him. Remember, don't fear their fears. This hardened Marine just said, man, here's some things I'm afraid of. Here's some things I'm afraid of. I've, I've botched too much. And he actually talked about how empty he felt. We kept talking. We walked outside. He leaned over the fence, looking out over the pasture in the early morning sunlight. And he got big tears in his eyes. And he said, I haven't felt close to God in a long time. He said, I want to, but I don't think he'd let me close. I've done some awful things, buddy, horrible things. I don't see how God could love me. I don't deserve his love, and I don't think I could ever have my heart cleaned again. Well, I just shared with him my fears, my flaws, my own struggles with sin, but I also told Wes that it's so freeing to know that Jesus died in my place for all my sin, all my sin, and that none of us can put ourselves right with God, but God made the way, the only way. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. I said, so, Wes, you're right. Not one of us deserves God's forgiveness, and not one of us can earn his love. And I just explain it's, it's grace. Jesus paid the full freight. Jesus is our only hope. Well, I just want to say, you and I, you have Wes's all around you. They may be at work, they may be in, under your roof, they may be in your neighborhood. And God has located you right there as his ambassador. And for those of you who are going through a really hard time, you're going through actual suffering right now, whether it is undeserved because of your alignment with Jesus or you're just you're having a really, really rough go right now, he actually has you in that not just appointed place, near that appointed person, but in that appointed season. And not only that, he's with you in it. and he's saying don't worry you don't need to go study up yes study know the gospel but ultimately my friend Wes wasn't looking for a script he was asking about a living hope I just want to free some of you up from the lie that you've got to have every answer squared off or every stinking weird passage figured out if you know that Your hope is ultimately living because your Savior is living. you got a great start. How do we do it? He doesn't say with expertise and with great squared-off answers. He says with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness is our attitude toward those that are asking. Your hope's showing. What is that hope? And reverence really is kind of going back to that ultimately we want to do this. If God was listening in, he'd smile because we're respecting him. We're respecting his holiness. We're respecting just the gravity of what he went through in giving his son to die in our place. So I just want to say what God's just saying is, I've, I've got you. Your living hope is secure. Be assured of that. And know that you've got a watching West right around you. We're going to sing Jesus paid it all if the worship team would come up. For some of us, we need to rejoin the ranks of the not troubled. We've actually started to sweat and be so anxious about so many things the way the world does. And God's saying, hey, suffering's par for the course. But I've secured your future. I've secured and purposed your present And I put the people in your life that I want them to go. There's something about you. My question is, what what would they be curious about? Would they have that question? Because your hope is showing. My hope is showing. And sometimes my hope is misplaced. We're going to sing Jesus paid it all for these weird verses that we don't fully understand. But what's clear in verse 18 is he died for your sins and mine. And he wants you, if you don't have that hope, to know the assurance that your future is secured and you have eternal life now in a relationship, as I should say, a relationship with the living God who died but was raised again to live. And we can live in that hope. Lord, as we sing this, hit our hearts with the truth that you paid it all. And you could say it's finished because the debt was paid and it was cleared and we didn't have to make up the difference, we didn't have to try to clean ourselves up, that you died the just for the unjust buddy, for the unjust fill-in-the-blank here. Cause us to be those who would display and then be ready to declare the hope within us. And may Jesus be beautiful through our messy lives because people see him in and through us. We pray this in his name. Would you stand? Let's sing Jesus Paid It All, and then I'm going to give us a benediction. Thank you.